0: It's easy to want to cover up in some way as professors. In today's episode, Dr. Jose Antonio Bowen encourages us to teach naked. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Jose Antonio Bowen is president of Goucher College. He's won teaching awards at Stanford, Georgetown, Miami, and Southern Methodist University, where he was the dean of the Meadows School of the Arts. He's written over 100 scholarly articles, edited the Cambridge Companion to Conducting, is an editor of the six CD set, Jazz, the Smithsonian Anthology, and has appeared as a musician with Stan Getz, Bobby McFerrin, and others. He's written a symphony, which has been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, and is the author of Teaching Naked, How Moving Technology Out of Your Classroom Will Improve Student Learning. It's such an honor and a privilege to have him on today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us on Teaching in Higher Ed today, Dr. Bowen.
1: Hi, good morning.
0: As you already know, I'm actually going to flip the recommendation segment of the show. Usually we do them both at the end, but I'm going to start with mine and then we're going to end the show with yours. And my recommendation today is to check out the StoryCorps Great Questions. Now, first, let me start by explaining what StoryCorps is. They've been around since 2003 and they've collected and archived more than 50,000 interviews with over 90,000 participants. And each person that goes and, and offers up a gift of their conversation gets it recorded on a CD to share, and it's also preserved at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. The mission of it is to provide people of all backgrounds and beliefs with the opportunity to record, share, and preserve the stories of our lives. And I'm going to have a link to StoryCorps' great questions on today's show notes, and that's at teachinginhighered.com 30. And I wanted to give people just a little bit of a flavor of what a StoryCorps story sounds like. And this is a recording from one of their most famous stories ever an interaction between Danny and Annie. Danny is an OTB clerk and Annie a nurse. And they, in this conversation, remember their life together from their first date to Danny's final days with terminal cancer. It is a little bit of a tearjerker. I won't play too much of it because we don't have that many tissues with us today. (laughs) But I did want people just to get a sense of what these stories are like she started to talk and I said listen I'm going to deliver a speech I said at the end you're going to want to go home I said you represent
1: a 34 letter word I said that word is love I said if we're going anywhere we're going down the aisle because I'm too tired too sick and too sore to do any other damn thing and she turned around and she said well, of course I'll marry you and the next morning I called her as early as I possibly could and he always to- gets up early <laughs> to, make- to make sure <laughs> she hadn't changed her mind and she hadn't and the uh, Every year on on April 22nd, around 3 o'clock, I call her and ask her if it was today, would she do it again? And so far, the answer's been the same. Yeah, 25 times yes.
0: (laughs) That just gives you a little sense of the flavor of their stories. Unfortunately, Danny is no longer with us, but his story and his love for Annie and her love for him continue to live on through this StoryCorps story. So, Jose, I'm going to ask you just a few of the questions that they have on their Great Questions website, which is what I'm recommending today, that people go to the Great Questions website, and they think about someone that's special to them in their lives, and they ask them some of these questions, and maybe consider recording it so they might preserve that memory with that person. So, tell me, what is it you do for a living?
1: What do I do for a living? Well, I find creative solutions for problems with people who think they can't talk to each other most of the time. I'm a musician, so I have a day job uh, like most musicians. And my day job is currently as president of Goucher College. And so people sometimes find that to be um, a stretch uh, from being an academic, you know, going to the dark side, but especially from being a musician. Mm. But I, I, I tell people that being a musician is fundamentally about listening and as an accompanist, I'm gonna play the piano and so I spent most of my life as an accompanist. So my job has been to make other people sound better, which is fundamentally the same job as being a college president.
0: And how did you get into your line of work?
1: <laughs> um, kind of well, like by accident. I think I don't think anybody goes to college thinking I may want to be a dean or a college president. You know, I was a musician, but my parents, you know, first generation wanted me to, you know, couldn't major in mu- music, couldn't even major in classics. I had to major in, in chemistry, you know, something practical. So I did. I worked as a chemist, et cetera, for a while. And only later in life did I realize that I could combine my interest in music with an academic career. I mean, who's ever heard of musicology? But I ended up as a musicology professor as a way to have a day gig that related to my, my interest in being a musician. And then, you know, one thing led to another organizing a band or running a piano studio is, you know, being an entrepreneur or kind of a freelancer, it's, you know, fundamentally organizing other people, and so you if you can organize a band, you can organize a department. From there, you get, you get, the, you move along the academic ranks, uh, and I found myself being a president before too long.
0: What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: What, what did I, or mm-hmm. do I? What
0: did you? <laughs> um, Maybe
1: we should ask help. Well, Yeah, that's a funny question, you know, I mean, after the fireman stage. um, And I think, you know, I wanted to be a musician, and then I got to do most of the things that I wanted to do as a musician. But it's a hard life. You're on the road all the time. So, you know, I love the travel, love getting to go to exotic places. But at some point, you know, I don't like being on the road, you know, 300 days a year. You know, I actually, this is a good combination of things that I do. So in some ways I get to do the thing that I most wanted to do, which is to play music. Um, I just don't do it all the time, which I found when I did it all the time was actually not what I wanted to do. Mm. Uh, it becomes work, um, if and again, if you're doing it 300 days a year, you, know, you spend 90% of your time traveling uh, and unpacking and a fraction of the time actually doing the music.
0: What lessons has your work life taught you?
1: That there are often, you have to compromise they're often crazy people who are very good at what they do. Um, And a little bit of craziness is okay. And a lot of bit of craziness is, is going to make you crazy. You know, I often say it's like, so again, my analogy with, with a band, it's okay to have a band that has one guy who's a little nuts and you have to make sure, you know, he, 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 he packs his drumsticks. Um, But if the whole band is that way, you just, you just, you end up babysitting the whole time. And so it's okay for a department to have, uh, one crazy person. In fact it's a good thing. It actually stirs things up a bit. But if but if everybody is that way then you know nobody's nobody's running the asylum.
0: That's the last of the story core questions that I'll ask, but I really encourage people to go to the show notes at teachinginhigared dot com slash thirty and check out the more of them. I just read some of them in working because I just met Jose. <laughs> but there's some really engaging questions about different aspects of life, parenting, religion, serious illness, and all kinds of other things. So I encourage you to check those out. And now I'm going to talk to you more about what we planned on talking about. <laughs> and that is, I'd love if you would just start for us to the, the idea behind what is it to teach naked?
1: Well, it actually kind of relates to your story core questions. I mean, in a sense, you know, my, I, I, I think the, the thing that teachers do best, that, that in the classroom is to be human beings and to get to know their students as human beings and to make that connection between what matters to your students and what matters to you. You know, Teachers often think, well, you know, I'm the teacher, what matters to me is important, um, but, but pe- nobody learns that way. You, know, you only learn what's important to you. So to be a really great teacher, you have to start with what matters to your students. It ends with what matters to you. You have to get them there, but, but you can't get them there if you don't know what matters to your students, and so, you know, in the old days you had an advantage just because you knew more than your students, and so they didn't have a choice. It's like, well, I know the periodic table and you don't, so I'm going to sit here and talk about it. But these days, the, your phone knows more about the periodic table than you do, and there's you know all sorts of resources. And so, just knowing more than your students isn't going to be enough. Uh, it was never enough to be a great teacher, but but you could be a mediocre teacher in the past, and they'd still pay pay for you to lecture. Teaching naked is all about using class time and the face-to-face to make real connections, and not just to transfer information. And so, I find that technology is good at, you know, information providing, providing information. It's also good at, at connections, but but a different kind of connection that doesn't have to happen in the classroom. So, I encourage people to use technology outside of the classroom, both to connect with their students when they're not physically present, and the other is to use technology for information and testing, other kinds of things that, again, can be done outside of the classroom. And then to reserve the classroom time, which is the most expensive thing you have, for the most important, which is that personal connection, getting to know people.
0: There's been a lot written about teaching. There's been a lot written about using technology. And you flip everything on its head and say, for those of you that are enamored by the technology I'm going to ask you to throw that away when we get in the classroom. And then you say to those who are enamored with the classroom, I'm, a, I'm in front of a lectern. I am pontificating about my research and my expertise. You tell them they're going to have to throw the lectern away and actually engage in a deeper way. I can imagine there's been quite a reaction to you talking about this. You've, you've sort of unearthed some things. What's that been like for you? What's the reaction been like?
1: No, it's interesting. You know, in a sense, I'm the middle ground. I'm the middle term. You know, this, You're right. This, both both sides have something to hate. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, both sides have something to like too. That, you know, I am. I'm not invalidating technology. I'm not a luddite. But I also think that those who simply want to stay in the old way have to recognize that, you know, life has changed. Our students have changed. We know a whole lot more about student learning than we ever did when most of us were in school. We know a lot more about the brain. We know that active learning works. We know that it disproportionately disadvantages poor students, you know, students of color, you know, and so if you start by saying, well, do you want your students to learn? I mean, almost everybody can agree on that. You know, we're in this business because we want our students to be successful. And so, the question is how can we be you know how can they be how can we help them be successful and so there's some common ground there and so you know generally when i go do this you, you know you're never going to get everybody to agree about everything but but if i can find a little something for everybody I can make everybody's teaching a little bit better in some way so that for somebody who's a technology lover, they say, okay, I'm going to put away the computer for a day. And for somebody who's a technology hater, they can say, okay, I can see there's some value in using the computer to do this. Then I've advanced both of them in some way. But my real interest is is getting people to talk to each other on the common ground, which is that we have to be more attentive to student learning, and especially those of us who work at bricks and mortar institutions, which are expensive. They are simply more expensive than the online and other alternatives. And if we if we don't get better, Toyota and Honda got better. And you know, you know, Ford and Buick said, Ah, come on, who's ever going to want those little Japanese cars? They said, you know, Steinway said the same thing about pianos. They said, Who's ever going to want the? No one's ever going to buy a Korean piano. No one's ever going to buy Japanese pianos. Well, they were wrong about that, and and I think we're wrong when we say the online courses aren't going to get better. We'll, we'll always have this advantage. We'll always be Steinway. We'll always be Ford. No, we won't. I mean, they're going to get better. And so that's what's really important is that pedagogy didn't used to be a key part of being a professor. It was research and knowing more than your students. And, you know, they would learn by osmosis. And pedagogy has now become got to be the central focus of what we do as faculty. And virtually none of us were trained in it. So, That's a major, major shift, but I think it's an easier shift to make than saying we have to change everything. I'm just saying, no, we have to to actually look at the science and the research behind our real discipline, which is pedagogy and not just the subject matter that we cover.
0: To go back to your car analogy, it can be... Well, for everyone, I would would assert for everyone, it's going to be in some ways akin to trying to learn to drive that stick shift car, though. And it's not all going to go smoothly for you. I can recall one of my bigger teaching fails in the last few years. I still remember this moment vividly, because it just represents what I don't want to (laughs) do as a teacher. I was... I'm fairly good at engaging people because I I grew up doing corporate training and and you don't get away with that when you're asking a business to pay you thousands of dollars an hour by lecturing to them. That's not something that that they will pay you good money to do. So I I was asking questions with the students to get them to think about their own behavior as consumers because we were in a marketing class talking about consumer behavior. So there's this whole idea of heuristics and we go into the store and we just go down to the deodorant aisle and we pick up our deodorant we don't think much about it and then off we go but if we don't if they don't have the kind of deodorant that we typically would get then we start thinking about how we might behave as consumers so i'm asking the different students a pretty personal question about their preference in deodorants thinking that this is going to be something we could all engage on and i stupidly asked one of the young men in class what kind of deodorant he uses he, he is from a country in which they do not wear deodorant. And so he very boldly, not knowing that this was going to be something that would cause students to laugh at him in the classroom, said, I don't wear deodorant. And I thought, oh, I mean, just. I still thinking back; it was a few years ago, and I'm still just blushing that 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 ah, stupid, stupid, stupid. So, so I think that sometimes people, as they started to drive this stick shift car and felt one of those jerks and thought, "That's not what I want to do. I want to embrace diversity. I don't want to embarrass someone in the classroom." That they're gonna have those failures. How have you helped people overcome those kinds of failures where it didn't go the way they wanted it to? And and yet they know that if they can just keep working on that gear shift, it's going to pay off.
1: Well, that's a great, great, great example. I'm going to use that one because <laughs> it, it, it is all about the disconnect that we, we assume everybody is like us, you know? And so, you know, you assume everybody uses deodorant and you know, you're thinking, okay, I'm not talking about race. I'm not talking about whatever, this is safe. It's deodorant. Um, and, and, but again, we, we are opaque to our own intellectual accent, right? Everybody has an accent Every, in the way they speak, but they also have an accent in the way they think. And, and so academics in particular are, 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 are really bad examples of learning because we learned in spite of the system, right? So, so, so academics can say, well, I learned this way. It's like no one will never do that because you know we're the oddballs we're the weirdos we're the people who like school so much we're still here (laughs) Um, you know most students don't learn that way Um, they don't like school they want to be done with school and so we need to help the bottom half of the class not the top two or three kids so failure is simply a part of the game and failure is going to happen both because as I said we're oddballs but also just because disconnect is just part of what happens you know we are we're going to be in a constant battle to recover from our mistakes. But by making that mistake, look at what you learned. I mean, you look at what you learned. My god, I was making an assumption about all of my students that was incorrect. And that's much more valuable than just blithely talking on and on. The first thing I would say is to embrace mistakes that this is why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley and we're not. You know, the promoters, you know, we work in a medieval institution. It's been around a long time. It's hard to change. But you know, all of those 30-year-old billionaires took a risk, you know, and, and, and they failed multiple times. There are greater rewards from failure, and simply accepting that, you know, you may go bankrupt in a few classes means that you will eventually be able to, if you can harness that, be a better teacher, reach more students. So, you know, in your situation, I, I find that, you know, when you make a mistake, when something goes horribly wrong, it's okay to admit it. I mean, that, that's, that students will forgive you when they recognize, oh, okay, huh, I made a mistake. Um, that wasn't working. I'm sorry. I, I tried something new. Here's, here's why I tried it. I was trying to do this. I know that from educational theory or, you know, the brain, this is how, this is how people learn. So I tried this thing, and I, di- I didn't get it right. I think you get a lot of credit for trying mm-hmm. and for being honest. But it also models, in some ways, the most important thing. I think that what education is really about is teaching people to change. We have to model that, that in some ways, the the, the most important thing you can do as a teacher is to model change, to say, I've changed my mind. We say, well, we want to teach students to be open-minded, to think different. Well, okay, but when was the last time you said to students, that's a great question. You've changed my mind. I was wrong. You've just proved me wrong. I've changed my mind. When you do that, students say, wow, that's what it means to be a smart person. That the teacher, the person I admire, just changed their mind. Maybe I could change my mind too. So but thing- if the teacher never changes her mind, you think, well, s- smart people are smart because they know lots of stuff and they're never wrong. So I need to be like that. Yeah. And so they're modeling f- professors and trying to never be wrong. And so if you want to teach students to change their minds, to, to, to be open-minded, we have to model it for them. And the best way to model it is by making mistakes.
0: The thing I love about how the story ends is that I had been trying to get this guy to meet with me outside because English was certainly by no means his first language and he had not been doing well on the exam. So I kept saying, hey, I've got lunch right after this class. And I know you don't have practice until later. And let's let's just come and let's just eat in the calf and let's just let's review this stuff. And, and to him, he was Asian and it was too, he, that was too much of a distance. You don't have lunch with your professor. <laughs> and I, and through yeah. that experience, I think he saw that I was human and approachable beyond what he had experienced in the past. And so from that point on, I made a mistake. I don't I'm not proud of that story, except that I'm proud that it formed a relationship where we had lunch every week in that class after after that experience. I think I think it has a happy ending. And then I can also learn to be better at engaging and and, and challenge my own assumptions, like you said.
1: But I think I think there's plenty. The the, the the thing most important to be proud about is that you know, is that you made a mistake. I mean,
0: mm-hmm. we have
1: to, you know, the, the, the you know we, we say it. You know, the person who's never made a mistake. I mean, I mean, how good could they be? You know, how good a basketball player or a piano player could you be if you've never made a mistake? You know, that's how we learn. And so, if you're if you're not learning, you're not getting you're not getting better as a teacher. And so, in most disciplines, when you're teaching something. We teach through mistakes and that's very you know, very much true for all the physical skills. If you're teaching, you know, yoga or tennis or the piano, you know, we're always talking about be where your body is, you know, learn from your mistakes. And as a teacher, we just, you know, again, we're actually, we're teaching mental complexity. We're trying to get our students to have a more complex model of the world. And to understand that the answer to most things is it depends. If we're gonna do that, we have to model for them our own mental complexity and that we get it wrong. Mm-hmm. That's what we do.
0: If I were to go into a classroom where someone was truly living the principles of teaching naked, what would the classroom look like to me? What would I observe?
1: Furniture would is you know uh, probably set up fairly randomly. There's no normal, there's no front. You know, It's an active classroom. It's, 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 it's te- teaching naked is a metaphor. No visual aid here, necessary. I like furniture that moves around not people in in rows. You might still have 300 students in class, but the chairs are movable and so people are in groups of two or three doing something. The first thing I tend to do is I push content out to students before class and then I give them exams before every class, but I like index cards. So I'll, you know, if you have a reading, so what was your what was your favorite passage from the reading? What 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 passage from the reading? Which argument worked least well? Write that down. Bring it to class. Okay, you read the Wikipedia site on this. Find three mistakes. Write them on an index card. Bring them to class. So, so something. So you come to class. The first thing that you do is you say, okay, so hand your card to your neighbor. Turn it over and write a rebuttal. Or, you know, write an argument for or against. You know, some, some kind of writing happens at the very first thing in class that's reflective on, on what students have, have, have done before they came to class. And then there's an activity or there's you know, problems or we do something in class. Class tends to be noisy. Uh, I think we have the wrong idea about our classes being you know, places that are, that are quiet. There's a lot of back and forth about, well, should we ban laptops? Um, should we do this, should we do that? And there's an article in the Chronicle this week. Well, no, but you shouldn't need a laptop. I mean, or at least not for most of the time. I mean, you know, your class should be engaging enough. I mean, nobody uses a laptop while they're in yoga or playing tennis. Right? It's because you're engaged doing the activity. It's, you're too busy to be checking email between every ball. So that's the way class should be. It should be like, a, like an active tennis match where you're, you're, you're thinking about the next hit. At the same time, And I do allow computers in class, and I think it's, it's good to periodically say to people, okay, take out your laptop or take out your phone and, and let's figure out the answer to a problem. And you might need to get data to do that because that's how the real world works. You know, nobody says, okay, you need to write your next paper without access to data and research. Or, you know, respond to this memo from the provost, but you can't use the internet. That's not very realistic. So classes are messy. I believe in noisy and messy classrooms. Messy problems, complexity, lots of failure, people having to confront real problems, confront each other, confront me, etc.
0: You said something that was subtle but distinct. You don't ban laptops. It's not that they're not allowed. It's that for what you're doing in that moment, they're not needed. And I think that helps that frame that relationship between you and the students as, I don't know if this is too far to go, but as co-learners, so we're not going to need that for this particular conversation we're having or, or co-learning we're doing together. And I think that that helps because then it's not this, <laughs> there's, I guess it, it, it uh, shrinks some of the distance that's there.
1: You know, exactly. And I think, again, in the beginning, I probably have to say to you, you know, if you're a real beginner, I might have to say to you, you know, you probably shouldn't bring your phone onto the tennis court. Mm -hmm. You should probably just hold your racket with two hands. Mm -hmm. You you know, but after the first lesson, I don't have to say that anymore. You know that if I'm really engaged, I need both hands on the tennis racket. And so, so I think it's okay to say, please close your laptops. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to close your laptops and I'd like you to now argue with your, with the person sitting next to you about X. I'd like each of you to take a side in the following argument, or I'd like you to pretend that you're Henry VIII and I want you to construct whatever. I mean, you know, I, I give you something to do that, that 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 requires you not to use your laptop. So I think it's okay to guide students because students, you know, again, if, this is the, if you're the first naked teacher they've had or the first active classroom they've had, um, they're going to be surprised because, you know, students, you know, we say we don't lecture, um, but the evidence says we still do. And that students in most classes at most institutions walk into class, they open up their laptop and they start taking notes and use Facebook when they get bored. That's what's happening in most of our classrooms. So if you're the first person they've encountered that says, OK, we're going to play a game today. or we're going to do we're going to do the hardest problem set in class. And I want everybody who got the answer 12 to find somebody who got the answer 13 and argue with them about what the right answer is to this problem. They're going to look at you like you have three heads because they've never they've never encountered this. So the first time it happens, you probably need to explain, well, here's what we're going to do. Here's why. Transparency really works. Here's how your brain works. And, and so we know this about you know, your brain, and so we're going to argue about the right solution for this problem and do the most complicated problems uh, in class, in teams, because that's the way the real world works. Once you've got them used to that, I think you can, you can kind of let it work the way it is. But it's like those mistakes that you make. If you notice that your students are all on Facebook, the solution is probably not to have a TA walk around the back of the classroom and say, hey, you're on Facebook, get off mm-hmm. of Facebook or stop, stop shopping, um, <laughs> but rather to, to change, change your pedagogy. I mean, you know, and I, I always, you know, if, if you want to be a policeman, go, go to the police academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't, that's not the job I signed up for. I want to engage students. And so if I'm not engaging them, the problem is I'm not engaging them. Not that I need to police them better.
0: What are some ways we can engage once they've left the classroom?
1: Well, it turns out that we've been handed the best of all connecting tools in the world called Twitter. And Twitter is all about connections, right? You know, the short, short posts. But the students think of our classroom as the ivory tower, right? I always say, you know, your classroom isn't Vegas. What happens here stays here. But students <laughs> don't know. The students actually think your class is like Las Vegas. That they don't actually recognize that what they're learning in class can be applied outside of class every day unless you force them to do it. And of course, once you do this, they, they start to get it on Twitter. Every time they find a movie they like, or a meme they like, or a post they like, they share it with their friends. They're used to finding things and saying, hey, everybody else needs to know about this on Twitter. You know, a great assignment is to say once a week, I'd like you to use the hashtag, hashtag my course. And I'd like you to share something that you find on Twitter with that hashtag so everybody else can see it. And then you can pull them up in class and say, well, who found examples of, you know, abnormal psychology this week? And it doesn't matter if they use the New York Times or they found a cat video because it's the connection that matters. It's students saying, oh, this is an example of abnormal psychology wherever I live, wherever I found This is what my roommate did. Here's a picture of my roommate doing something that I think is abnormal psychology. The point is that they're, get, they're applying, they're thinking, they're connecting. And so we've got to get over our, you know, our reluctance to use cat videos because that is how students think. I had a student actually post a Seinfeld video clip on a discussion board once. And my first reaction was, ah, come on, you know, a Seinfeld video. But in fact, he, he had it exactly right. He had picked the 10 seconds that exactly demonstrated the concept we were talking about. And I just couldn't see it because I was, I was poo-pooing the idea of a video. What is it, a half of all internet traffic is now video? It is increasingly how students think and share. And so what we want to do is have them think and share about our content that's the world's easiest Twitter assignment. It means you have to get on Twitter. But the good news is they don't have to fringe you or anything, right? All they have to you just use the hashtag. They don't need to follow you. You just need to give them a hashtag that you can then find on Twitter. And you can see what your students are posting about your class, which is actually pretty cool.
0: Because it's come up far too much. I'm, I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I have sat in too many meetings lately where people say we're working on creating a hashtag. And for anyone who is not aware, you just press the pound sign and give it a name. And that's how you create one in the middle of typing. It's not something you have to send off your IT department to create for you.
1: So yeah, you know, that's, that's funny. I like that. Yeah, no, it is, <laughs> it is actually the simplest thing. It is just, mm-hmm. you know, my, you know, your name, a course number, something, you know. And of course, the students do this. And the funny thing is that students actually talk in hashtags. You know, they, oh, a hashtag my birthday like, mm-hmm. in in a, in a sentence. Like, no, that's a sentence. You don't need a hashtag <laughs> in, in a in a conversation. But it is. It's kind of become a joke. But it's true, you know, students, you know, I was actually the, you know, students are, you know, the now into college. So class of 2019 is, of course, one of the most common hashtags. But it doesn't actually help because I can't find students from my college that way because there are millions of them. Well, hundreds of thousands.
0: Yeah, and it is this whole language to learn, speaking of the cultural elements we spoke of earlier. I was reading about the 2014 biggest social media fails, and there was a company who had thought they would tag on to this big popular trending hashtag that was why I left and so Mm -hmm. they said I think it was a pizza company or something I left Mm -hmm. because they didn't have any pizza and of course that's about domestic abuse why I I left my abuser and I mean just the complete (laughs) boneheaded move there but but yeah it does take a little time to learn the language but it does not take a lot of time to set up a hashtag around your class and get the students engaged and in sharing like you said.
1: Yeah, it's also pretty easy to make a mistake here. So I mean, it's true. You know, I would start by asking students what's cool and what they use and how, and all of that. You know, you need you need a teenager in your court. I mean, if you've got kids, this is actually pretty easy. But if you don't, you need to find a student who you trust who say, okay, so help me set this up. What's a good hashtag and and what's a good assignment and and what will people not but then persevere a little bit because I think, again, you get points for trying Mm -hmm. and you will learn something from trying. You will learn about this world that your students inhabit. And it's a little bit like a cell phone. You know, I was a cell phone resistor, I admit it, but it did change my life. And this is before the smartphone. It just allowed me to use that commute to talk to my mother every day. And I was a better son because I had a cell phone. Using a social media platform will change the way that you look at teenagers and it will help you understand, Oh, Actually, I do like being connected to my high school friends, or no, I hate being connected to my high school friends, but at least you'll understand how it has changed the human condition and the way that we you know, interact with each other, uh, for better or for worse.
0: This is the time in the show which we shift to recommendations, and as we all know, I already did my recommendation up front of the StoryCorps Great Questions, and so I'm going to pass it over to you, to whatever you would like to recommend.
1: Hmm, okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll let me do... Two websites. Games are like hashtags. It's like, oh, I need to. I need to find a, my my IT department needs to help me create a game that will do X. One of the easiest ways to engage students outside of classes with a game. The big repository is is Merlot.org. merlot. Org. like the wine, but but org not com. The other one's a wine site. So if you get to the wine <laughs> site, it's the other one. Um, but. Uh, but you know, then you can, it, this is a site that's curated by faculty, and so people like me give away stuff. Here's a game, that, you know, here's a the, here's the DNA model, here's a the whatever. Um, they're academic tools, so it's, it's, the, it's the essential site for looking for stuff. And another of my favorites is smashfact.com. You can create your own games, you can customize your own games, smashfact.com. It's very, very simple to use. It interacts with most of your learning management systems, so students can do, you know, I say here's a 10-level game. Uh, each level's worth a couple of points. It's worth 10% of your grade. Play the game all semester long, and if you want an A, you've got to get to level 9. And that's easy, and students can then do it. And again, all that happens on the back end fairly seamlessly. Those are two sites that every academic should know for making games or just finding somebody else's game that you can then use in class.
0: So I've gone, and I've read Teaching Naked, and I started to practice some of this in the classes. Some of it's going well, some of it's not. What's your last words of encouragement before we close today?
1: Change is hard, uh, and it's hard for you, and it's hard for your students. The process is not linear. We don't have a choice. We're not going to go back to lecturing all the time. Keep asking your students what's working. Expect some failure. Students are going to hate some of what you do. Some of it might be working, just not. you have to find a better way to figure out whether it's working. But the idea of, I know what's going on, I walk into class, I'm going to talk, and nothing else matters, that should be dead and buried. This is much more like learning to play tennis. It's not going to be a linear process. You've got to work on page one before you work on page two. Uh, And the first thing you do when you learn to play tennis is to learn how to swing the racket. And you don't care where the ball goes at first. (laughs) That's your first mission, is not to get the ball over the net. The first mission is to learn how to swing the racket, and then maybe page two, we learn how to use our feet. And so, you know eventually you'll hit the ball over the net. And that's the process of learning, and we're all learning how to do something new, which is how to be better, more engaged teachers.
0: President Bowen, thank you so much for investing your time today into this community where we're all trying to facilitate learning more effectively. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening to episode 30 of Teaching in Higher Ed, which you can access at teachinginhighered.com 30. If you'd like to get the show notes in your inbox every week, you can subscribe to the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update that includes the notes and all the links that the guests and I talk about at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That'll also get you the free EdTech Essentials Guide. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about or future guests, you can do that at teachinginhieredcom slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community.